This is the storyteller. Welcome back to episode number 13. The summer that death refused to stop coming. Thank you for listening. Just when I thought that life would get back to the way it was before Emmett Till was killed, before the children were all sent back to the north, before Theotis was beaten pretty near death by my sister and my mother, and even before my heart was broken by my dear. Well, guess what? Death reappeared. It did. It was like, it was kind of like it was playing hide and seek with me. I mean, I knew that it wasn't just coming after me, but it just seemed like it was. I was still only 12, but I was understanding a lot of things. I already knew that it was the Lord showing me and teaching me stuff. Don't ask me why I knew or how I knew. I just did. Maybe... Maybe I knew because I was always talking and whispering and laughing with him. Maybe that was it. You see, he didn't seem too big for me to play with. I still knew, though, that he was God. I guess I played with him the same way I played with my sunflowers, only different. He would always find me. Sometimes I could hide from the sunflowers. But with him, he would always find me. I'm glad he did. I'm glad he was big like that. I remember how parents played a game with their babies called peekaboo. I like seeing them do that. I didn't recall Auntie Becky ever playing that game with me. (laughs) I'm smiling and kind of laughing too. Just trying to imagine her with her black skin, bloodshot eyes, and that long tooth sticking out of her mouth. Trying to play (laughs) peekaboo with all of her black stuff on. No, I cannot even imagine her even saying those words, peekaboo. She probably didn't even know that game. But if she had, for sure, she would have played it with me. I can almost hear it. Peekaboo, I see you, sweet Isabel. I see you, sweet baby. Wow. I wish she had known about that game. But even now... I always knew that she was still seeing me, not like God, but in her own way. Anyway, that's how death was for that summer. It was back. I could feel it. I could almost smell it. 
It was thick in the air. Thick in my house. There was a quietness about the house. Almost like a sadness. I noticed that my grandfather preacher was sleeping a lot and always tired. My dear said that she thought that something was bad wrong with him, being so tired and all. She made up all kinds of portions for him. She cooked liver with the blood still in it, one potion after another potion after another potion. She made fresh beets, but nothing seemed to work. She even ordered a potion called Hadakol. Hadakol was for tired, poor blood. Even that didn't work. I prayed that God would heal him, or at least tell Madea how to heal him. Or maybe even that white preacher that came on the radio, making like he could heal people. He even said that he had raised the dead a few times. My mother would laugh and say, that old white man, he ain't nothing but a lie and a grunt. He ain't raised nobody from the dead. Only God can do that. I thought to myself, sure wish I could. If I could, I would raise Auntie Becky from the dead. I sure would. That night, that same night that we were talking, a sudden, quick, unusual storm came. I said to myself, here's the storm. What's about to happen now? I was familiar with storms. Actually, the storm came, but there was no rain. Just lightning, lightning and thunder, the kind of thunder that shook the whole house. I pulled the covers over my head to block out the sound of the thunder. Normally, my grandfather would have pulled the covers up and laid on the floor beside me. Not this time. But I finally fell asleep. And in my dream, I saw a white man with a white coat on. He was looking down on a man on his doctor's table. The doctor was shaking his head and tears were running down his face. The man on the table was my grandfather, preacher. The next morning, I ran to my my dear and I said to her, my dear, I had a dream and I wanna tell you about it. We need to take Preacher to the doctor today. She smiled and agreed with me. She said, I knew you would start dreaming soon. The Lord showed me that he would give you dreams. That's why you are the way you are, sweet Isabel. I quickly said to her, I'm not crazy, my dear. No, you're not, little girl. Just different. Come on. Stop talking like a chatterbox and get him downtown to the doctor. That's what you saw in your dream, right? I said, yes, ma'am. We had one man in town that drove people wherever they wanted to go for a fare. 
Madea didn't like him too much. She didn't like to use him. She would say, I'd rather walk or hitch up my old wagon than pay that old robber, Hugh Jackson. But this time, she agreed to pay that old robber. She got the word to Mr. Hugh Jackson that she was in urgent need of his service. I had already dressed my grandfather and got him ready to go to the doctor. He was so tired and weak. I had never been to a doctor before. Madea was going to go too, but I knew that she had a lot to do at the house and the store. I said to her, Madea, I'll take him. You stay here. She gave me instructions about going to the back door, not the front. She rehearsed with me what to say and how to say it. In spite of all her rehearsing, I was not at all prepared for what awaited me at the doctor's. Even the Lord didn't tell me what awaited me. I laughed at the Lord and I said to him, smiling, we're going to talk tonight at bedtime. We certainly will. I was 12 years old, just 12. But he was my best friend, the Lord. So I could talk to him like that. Mr. Hugh Jackson was going to pull off after he dropped me off at the doctor's office. He was about to pull his car off without helping me get my grandfather out of his car. That old raggedy car that he made people pay to ride in. He stretched his hand out for his fare. I said, not until you help me get my grandfather out of here. Something was happening inside of me. I felt and sounded so much like my grandmother. Mr. Hugh Jackson walked with a limp, and he was always in a hurry. As he was limping out the car to help me, I heard him say under his breath, fast heifer. I didn't care. I already knew that I was going to tell my mother when I got home. The minute I got home, I was going to tell on him. The walk back was long, long, long. The walk back to that back. The walk to the back. The walk to the back was long. I asked Mr. Hugh Jackson, why do we have to walk so far? He's sick. He said to me in a mean voice, because you're colored, that's why. Did you forget that? We finally, after such a long walk to the back, we finally got to the door. The sign said, for colored only. That sign was not new to me. I was always seeing that. <laughs> I used to ask my mother, why she didn't put up her own sign that said, for colored folk only, so that the whites would stop always stopping by for R.C. Cola and fish sandwiches. They would come in there strutting, sweating and hot, throwing their hat on the counter, and asking for a fish sandwich with slaw and plenty of hot sauce. She laughed her happy laugh and said, 
I hear you. Listen, little girl. White folks' money spend the same way color folks' money spend. I don't care nothing about that. Well, anyway, I knocked hard on the doctor's door and rang the cowbell. Mr. Hugh Jackson said, stop that knocking. They're not going to like that. Just ring the bell, sweet Isabel. Stop it. Why he was so mad, I don't know. He was being paid the fare he asked for. I kept knocking and kicking, knocking and ringing, knocking and kicking, knocking and ringing on the door. Someone finally came to the door. We had to sit downstairs and wait and wait and wait. When I got older many years later, after many visits to the doctor myself, I realized that the wait really wasn't that long. It was just part of the process. But at 12 years old, it seemed forever. And with my father, my grandfather being as sick as he was, it really seemed like forever. As I sat there, waiting and waiting, I pulled my grandfather's head down on my shoulder, the same way he used to do me. I wrapped him up in my arms as tight as I could. He was small, but he was still a tall man. He had lost so much weight, and I could hardly hear him breathing. It was at that moment that I knew and that I realized that I was getting older. I could feel it. Here I was, 12 years old, but with an older person's mind. I didn't know which mind I had. Maybe I had a 16-year-old mind, 18 or 20. I didn't know because I had never been that age. But what I did know was that I felt older. All of my friends had gotten older in a short period of time. Just since the killing of Emmett Till, it seemed to make us all grow up. My friends began dressing different. They were getting their hair straightened. Spending nights with each other in each other's home, in their beds, and talking about boys. A lot of them had boyfriends. My sister had one too, but she didn't talk to me about him. She said I was too young. I really didn't care. I was not even interested in boys, at least at, not at that time. The parents would ask my mother if we could spend the night with their, with their girls. They knew that she would say no, and she did. She said, they don't watch those kids. Their girls are too free. They're going to end up having babies. Letting them go to the movie theater and letting them have company. The movie theater was just starting to allow the colors to attend, and they were all happy. They were all loving it. But she was saying, It's just the devil's work. She said, those girls are too free. 
and their parents are not watching. She said, you got your own bed. You got your own house, sweet Isabel. Sleep in your own bed. She knew what the kids were doing. She really knew that the parents weren't watching them because they were trying to let them have some freedom. They kept saying, my girls are older now so I can loosen the rein on them. Anyway, I didn't really care. Besides, if I slept in their home and in their bed, how would I talk to the Lord? I already knew that there was nothing wrong with what the kids were doing. It just wasn't what I wanted to do. Sitting here, holding my grandfather in my arms, and just waiting and waiting. I'm remembering how <laughs> we used to pass by the movie theater on Saturday, and the white children lined up waiting to get their tickets. The lights on that big yellow building were flashing with all kinds of beautiful bright lights. It really was a beautiful sight to behold. And the white girls, they were all giggling with their friends and holding hands with their boyfriends. We were on the other side of the street just watching them as we passed by. Many times they would yell out to us, Stop watching us and mind your business. Finally, the time came. The colors were allowed to come to the movies, but not on the same day. Posters and flyers were everywhere, posted at the churches, posted on stores, posted everywhere, announcing the movie theater was now open to the colors. Going to the movies, sitting in the dark, was a highlight for the community both young and old folk. They all began to love going to the movies. And everybody went. Except us. The people begged my mother to let us go. They said, there's nothing wrong with the movies, it's just fun. But she insisted that that was nothing but the devil's work and make pretend. I didn't really mind. Because I had so many other things on my young mind. I felt like I was in a hurry. In a hurry to learn something. I wasn't sure what. But it just felt that way to me. I do remember Auntie Becky saying that the Lord sent me to my Madea for her to prepare me for the storms that would come into my life. So I needed to hurry up and get prepared. I like the children, but I didn't need them. I like that feeling of not needing them, not needing their company not needing their fun. But I didn't hate them. I liked them. But I was all right with not needing them. 
sitting there learning the lessons of waiting and holding my grandfather's weak body in my arms was what I was being prepared for. All of these things were coming back to my mind as I sat there waiting and waiting, me and my grandfather. I looked down at him and saw that his face was wet with tears. He was in pain. I eased him down off of my shoulders onto two chairs and I proceeded to go upstairs to get the doctor. The door between the upstairs and the downstairs was locked. I began to knock and kick that door with everything I had in me, with the intentions of kicking it down. I kept saying, somebody, hey, somebody, somebody, anybody there, hey, somebody. The other sick people were begging and pleading with me to stop. They said, you just have to wait. Listen, I wasn't red like my dear, but I felt fire, hot ball fire, all over me. I was blooming mad. I wasn't listening to any of them, even though they were adults. I kept knocking and kicking on that door. I wanted to kick it down. That was my intentions. And as I was kicking, they were hollering, Stop, little girl. Stop, little girl. You just have to wait. Come sit down and wait. I turned to them and I said, I won't wait. I already waited. (laughs) Wow. Who was that girl? Where did that voice come from? Where did that feeling come from? Fireball hot all over? Red as fire? Sounding like my Madea? Hmm. I kept knocking. And I kept kicking. And they kept hollering. They were scared to death. Then finally, someone came to the door. The lady, I guess she was a nurse or a doctor or something, I didn't know. That was my first time there. She screamed at me, What is it, gal? I said, My grandfather is dying. And he needs to see a doctor now. She said, well, what's his name? I said, Mr. Witcham Lawhorn. It was really William Lawhorn. But when I talked too fast, I had a tendency to stutter. I didn't care. I said it again. His name is Mr. Witcham Lawhorn. She mocked me and said it real loud so the other people could hear it. Doctor, this guy brought a Mr. William Leghorn here. I said, his name is Mr. Witcham Lawhorn. 
not Leghorn. They had a way of changing your name. They love to do that just for the fun of it. She said, you need to bring him up. I'm not coming down there. I turned to look at the other men. They were still sitting there in the waiting room. Nobody moved. I went to pick him up myself. And then finally one of the men said, I'll help you. He didn't seem to mind that he had been sitting there waiting and waiting and waiting long before I was. I knew that I would get his name and where he lived so that my mother could pay him for his help. She would always say, Oh, no man, nothing but to love him. I would make sure that she took care of him. Remember, I was only 12. When the doctor saw him, he said, This is the man that works for Miss Rose. I know him. He's a good man. He turned to me and he began to laugh as he looked at me. He said, You Rose's granddaughter? I said, Yes. Help him, please. I really didn't want to hear any of his talk. He worked on him for a long time. And just like in the dream, he began to look sad. He said, I'm going to send out for some medicine for him to take. But I'm afraid he's still not going to make it. I looked over and saw all the medicine in his cabinet. I said, give him some of what you have here. (laughs) He looked at me, he shook his head at me, and gave me two big bottles of medicine. I said, I need a spoon to give him some now. He gave it to him and let him lay back down on the table for a while. He said to me, you love him, don't you? I said, yes, sir. I was was beginning to finally calm down a little bit. I was happy that the man was helping him. I said, yes. Yes, sir. I do love him. I said to him, When should I bring him back? He looked at me long and hard as if he was trying to figure out how to tell me the sad news. He said, little girl, there ain't no need to bring him back. I knew what he meant. That was just like the dream. The Lord had prepared me already. But the words still hurt. Little girl, there ain't no need to bring him back. I kept hearing it over and over in my head. Ain't no need to bring him back. There ain't no need to bring him back. I took him back home. My mother did everything she could to help him get better. But in two weeks' time, he was dead. But what a sweet, 
memorable death it was for a sweet, memorable man. This death was different. I was so glad that I wasn't interested in the movies. I was so glad that I wasn't interested in spending the night with friends and boys. I would have missed out on the most glorious death that I'd ever seen. To this day, as I remember this glimpse of life, it changed my life to this very day. I'm glad I can remember. It changed how I view dying. It allowed me to see the beauty of dying. It wasn't just death. It was dying beautifully and with a purpose. Just as it changed my life regarding dying, it also changed my life regarding living. Wow. From then on, I knew that my living had to mean something. To me first, and then to everybody I met. I didn't have time to spend with girlfriends and things that had no purpose. I knew that all roads would eventually lead to my dying. But my living by God had to have purpose and fulfillment. My living had to have meaning. Let me share with you my memory of a sweet transaction. I like to call it a transaction. When my grandfather knew that he was dying, he wanted me to be in the room with him all day. He said, Sweet Isabel, I know that you're real scared of dead people. But my sweet baby, when you're dead, you're done. Listen, you know how much I love you. Don't you? He asked. I said, yes, preacher. I know. He said, if I could come back, I would go down to that bank and get all that money, every penny of it, out of the bank and bring it to you. Now, if you don't ever get that money, that means I couldn't come back. I said, well, how long do I have to wait to see if you're coming back? He said, give it about a week or two. Then if you don't get the money, what do you think that means? I said that you can't come back and I don't have to be afraid that you're going to be in the dark roaming all throughout the house. That's right. So I need you to remember that. It's important. If you don't get the money, that means I won't be coming back. So 
so you shouldn't have to be scared. He said, listen to me closely. I want you to mind your dear. She's a mean one, that woman, but she loves you. She didn't have to take you in, but she did it. She did it because you her blood. And she knew that you needed her to make you strong. She won't always be here with you. You won't always be here in this house with her. But when you leave, don't ever forget what she taught you. You didn't come here to stay. She knows that. Your mother is a smart woman. She knows that she's going to get old and she won't be able to take care of you. And she will send you away. I don't know where, but you'll be just fine because she made you strong. His voice was getting weaker and weaker. He said, hold my hand. You see that spider going up and down on that wall, up and down, up and down in that web? I want you to put your eyes on that spider, baby, and don't take your eyes off until you see him fall to the floor. I need you to obey what I tell you. I said, will it take long for the spider to fall? He laughed. He was weak, but he laughed. (laughs) He said, sweet Isabel, no, not long at all. I did as I was told. When the spider dropped carelessly on the floor, I turned to tell him that the spider had fallen, but he was gone. No one had to explain to me why he said what he said about the spider. I knew that he did not want me to see what death looked like as he took his last loving breath. I loved him. He loved me right to the end. But the last look I saw on his face was a look of a sweet peace on the face of the most loving, gentle soul that ever lived. From that day to this one, to this very moment as I deliver this podcast, Between he and Auntie Becky, I have never known a sacrificial love like that. A love until your last breath. A love until death do us part. He calmed my fears like he always did. In every storm, he was right there. No. He didn't come back. I didn't get rich. But his presence, his warmth, his love that wrapped me up and taught me what undying love feels like, I got that. And I still have that. Oh, something else. You got to hear this. 
I learned from Madea, the week of his funeral, that his family that lived two towns over from us would be at the funeral. His wife and three of his older children. What? A wife and children? She said, let me tell you his story. She said that he was on the run from the law for not being able to pay back some money he had borrowed from his boss. And they had threatened to kill him because he couldn't pay the money back. My mother heard about him. She took him in. He was one of the travelers. She changed his name and gave him a home with us. She gave him a way to take care of his family. And she allowed him to visit his family every other weekend. Wow. He was a traveler? She changed his name? Well, I always knew that he was not really our grandfather. But I didn't know this. Me and my sister used to wonder where he went all dressed up on the weekends. And his suitcase was packed so full, he would have to tie a rope around it to hold it together. Wow. At the funeral, when I saw them, and I saw them crying, I wanted to be jealous seeing them crying over him. But I couldn't. Because I had him every day and every night. All of my young life. They only had him every other weekend. They knew about me. They said, you're sweet Isabel. Thank you for taking care of my father. Wow. I didn't know what to say. I just hugged them so tight. I knew what they missed. I hope they carry him in their hearts the way I will always carry him. He will be right here in my heart forever, as long as forever is. I learned what love was supposed to look like and feel like. Their father and Auntie Becky did that. They taught me and showed me how to love and how to live in love. To my listeners, what about you? Have you learned how to live in love? I hope so. Until next time, a glimpse of life according to the storyteller.